waiting for tablecloths and stuff, but we're going to go ahead and get started with the food safety talk so we can continue the conversation after lunch. Um, I am very happy to introduce another one of our students on campus. Caitlin Casali is a PhD student. She says to simplify it with the food safety program, but it's more than that. She's doing some really cool things, does a lot of consulting work, and she said, hey, you're having this conference, you need to have the food safety talk guys here. So I'm gonna let Caitlin tell you who they are and why she thinks they needed to be here. And uh, if you have questions on papers, hold them up. Otherwise, we'll come around with the microphone later. So here we go. Did you hit record? Um, I think it's recording. Uh, it says it's recording, so right. I'm going to assume that is correct. <laughs> All right. Um, we get your new mic. All right. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to introduce our speakers for today. So first, uh, Ben Chapman. I've known him the longest. Um, I I was at NC State with him. We actually met before my freshman year, and we didn't realize it until I graduated and <laughs> beat him and the dean at golf. <laughs> and uh, Don Schaffner as well. He's from Rutgers, and um, we met a few years ago when he gave a seminar here at Michigan State in the food science department, and we just kind of kept bumping into each other, and he started paying me to do things, so um, he's now on my committee as an informal advisor, and he has cute dogs. Both of them have cute dogs, so... Uh, so without further ado, let's uh, let them get started. Great. Thanks, thanks for the uh, intro um, and the invite. I'm going to mess around with my mic probably a bunch here. Um, so as, as Caitlin said, I'm Ben Chapman. I'm a, an associate professor at uh, NC State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and I do food safety research and extension in consumer food service and retail uh, sectors for the most part. Um, my, my background, how I kind of got into food safety is my undergraduate degree is in molecular biology, but I ended up working actually fairly close to the um, Canadian-US border and near Windsor, Ontario, when I'm from Toronto originally. And I started working in on-farm food safety and moved really out of molecular biology into micro, but really into risk communication. I was working with an industry and I think suitably for, for this, um, <clears throat> for today's event and, and this conference, I was working with an industry, uh, greenhouse vegetables, that um, they were really, really concerned about exporting tomatoes to the US where about 75, 80% of the tomatoes that they grew uh, went and they were really concerned about a, a salmonella positive um, test by a buyer, by a regulatory agency, and then that leading to a non-tariff trade barrier. And so um, my, my role as a graduate student initially was to go in and um, like look, take samples and look for salmonella, but more quickly it kind of morphed into talking with farmers about what they were doing to reduce risks. And I ended up almost like switching towards um, organizational behavior, uh, policy, risk communication, risk management as, as areas in the, in the area of food safety for my, my research um, and, and extension. And then take, take that forward to the work that I, that I do now with a lot of different, um, a lot of different areas uh, around regulatory issues, whether that be 
in restaurants or in food pantries or at farmers markets, um, working with some of the groups that are not like well serviced, I guess, um, when it comes to, to food safety research and trying to figure out what are the best ways to help them move forward. And, and Don does other different things. <laughs> so it was, it was my idea to start the podcast and I wanted to make sure that I had somebody who could talk a lot in case I didn't have anything to say. And so I invited Ben to join me. He, uh, he thankfully said yes. And he's fulfilling his role very well. Thank you, Ben. Welcome. I do like to talk. <laughs> so uh, we started doing this. Uh, we started doing this podcast uh, about six or seven years ago, and we discovered that we like talking to each other because we're both uh, active in the International Association for Food Protection uh, annual meeting. And uh, for the hundredth anniversary of that annual meeting, we invited uh, National Public Radio Story Corps in to interview. Uh, pairs of food safety professionals, and, and Ben and I were paired up to talk to each other. And after we finished talking to each other, we realized we talked to each other all the time. But we realized that we really liked that that structured environment. And I had been listening to a, a lot of podcasts anyway, just unrelated to food safety, because at the time there, there were no food safety podcasts. Um, and uh, it just suddenly occurred to me that that this was something that I wanted to do. And so, uh, like I said, I knew I knew Ben liked to talk. And he, he has, has good things to say when he talks. And so uh, I invited him uh, to join me. And, and as they say, um, uh, the rest is history. Um, for those of you that don't um, know uh, about podcasts, I just want to read to you uh, the discussion, the, the description from, from your program. Um, uh, it says, and, and it's a great description because I wrote it. Um, <laughs> These, these are the jokes, folks. Um, uh, uh, podcasting is a new form of communication. It's like a radio broadcast, except it's transmitted over the Internet, and you can listen on your computer or your smartphone. Every two weeks or so, Ben and Don get together to talk about what's on their minds during the news regarding food safety. They strive to be relevant, funny, and informative. Um, probably uh, two out of three is not bad. Um, most episodes are recorded with Ben and Don sitting in their respective offices in North Carolina and New Jersey. Occasionally, they get together face-to-face -to -face and record a live episode, and that's what this session is going to be. Before we really get into it in detail, though, I want to just, and we've done this, we've done these live episodes a couple of times, but I want this to be interactive. As, as, you, as you know, um, you have uh, uh, note cards where you can write questions, and we'll have an, uh, an open mic portion where you can ask us questions. Um, I do, I, I, I should also say that if you uh, uh, want to speak on the microphone, you will be recorded, um, and you will be on the podcast. So if you don't want your voice broadcast on the internet, um, write your card, your question down on a card. But before we get into the, into the, the nitty-gritty details of the podcast, I just want to do a brief audience survey to find out what you guys know about podcasts. So, so prior to me saying the word today, how many of you have ever heard of something called a podcast? Let's see a show of hands. And so this is, this is an audio format. It's like radio. So I'm going to say for the listeners uh, who are not here in the room, uh, almost everybody raised their hands. Okay, next question. How many of you have ever listened to a podcast at least once. Let's see a show of hands. And so now uh, it's probably still most of the people in the room, I would estimate about 90%. Now, next question, important question. How many of you consider yourself regular podcast listeners where you subscribe and you listen to, let's say, a podcast at least once a week or on a regular basis? Let's see a show. Oh, wow. Uh, also, so this number is, is, is changing over time as I do these surveys. That number is actually, uh, I would say, about 50% of the people in the room. Now, the most important question, 
how many of you listen to our podcast? Oh, yes. And I, there's like three, four, five, six people raised their hands. So thank you, the, the true dedicated folks. So I want to say we were we were really we were really excited when we got here because people brought us gifts. So uh, we got uh, we were given these really nifty food safety talk bumper stickers. We must be on the same wavelength because one of the things that I did, and this is the surprise Ben, one of the things that I did in in anticipation of coming here and also in anticipation of going to the IAFP annual meeting is I had stickers treats. made. Treats. So we have treats. Okay. So uh, we have uh, here we go, Caitlin. Be the first recipient of the food safety talk uh, uh, sticker. Ben, you're the second Thank recipient. Um, I'll uh, I'll ask uh, Caitlin to pass these around. We have uh, plenty, and so if you want uh, if you want uh, more stickers, please let us know. So so thank you, and thank you for coming today. It's on the last day of a conference at lunch, uh, I'm never sure what we're going to get. Um, I was absolutely delighted to see that we are so popular, or lunch was so great they had to bring in an extra table uh, to have room for everybody. So so thank you all for coming for being here today. Awesome. Um, so for those of you who haven't listened to, to our podcast, what, what Don and I typically do is um, sort of go through some of the stuff that's going on in the world of food safety that we think is important or we think is interesting. And it's really just that. I mean, that's the format is, is for us, as Don said, just to talk to each other. His background is in um, microbial risk modeling. He's a, he's a math guy and I'm a communications guy. And so whenever there's an outbreak or an incident or an event or whatever it is, um, so even you know, new research gets, gets published, we often have different, different takes. We come at it from different angles. And so there's a lot of times when I'll be sitting at home watching The Crown on Netflix and think, oh, like as I'm reading Twitter, there's something that pops up and I was like, oh, I just wonder what Don thinks about it. Instead of texting him, we have this like Dropbox folder where we throw stuff in that prompts us uh, at, at each episode to, to talk about. Um, we, um, as Don mentioned, we've been doing this for about six years, seven, almost seven years. And so today is our 157th episode. Um, and we, the, for, for those who are interested in podcasting, um, we we try to consume podcasts like just like you do in, in lots of other uh, areas where listening to somebody else do something similar makes I think makes you better. And so some of the stuff that we've learned, we and someone asked us right before, like, do we ever run out of topics to talk about? No, there's always like this week there are five outbreaks announced, so that's easy. Um, like there's no shortage of people getting sick from food. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really what, what we're interested in. Um, but what, one of the things that we found is just regularly scheduling it matters. Not, not just like, Hey, when there's a topic, let's try and do it. So we, if, if you ever happen to listen to our podcast, there's some outro music that's Neil Young that uh, runs at the end of the podcast. And then afterwards you get to hear Don and I schedule the next time that we're going to talk, but it is fascinating. But every, for us, just getting on that schedule every two weeks makes it so we, we know we've got this like slice of time that we can uh, set aside for, for what we do. Um, so segueing a little bit, um, and being that we're here in the Kellogg Conference Center, there's kind of an apropos outbreak going on that's linked to Kellogg. Um, this uh, salmonella uh, bandaca that's uh, linked to um, 
uh, Honey Smacks, which is a cereal that I didn't even think existed anymore. I know when I was a kid, I used to love it. And growing up in, in Canada, we didn't have Honey Smacks. So when I cross-border shops to the U.S., which I know is kind of contentious right now, um, getting sneakers and stuff. Um, when I did that, I also uh, got cereal when I was here, and Honey Smacks was one of the ones that I remember eating. And I, even though I have kids that are seven and nine right now, I don't think we've ever had Honey Smacks. But so it was kind of a surprise, like, whoa, this cereal, first of all, still exists. And secondly, se 73 people in 31 states uh, sick with salmonella linked to it. And every time I, I've been in the world of food safety for about 15 years, and every time there's an outbreak like this, the first round of media questions around it or Twitter questions now are always like surprise. Like, wow, how did how did we have salmonella in this dry food, this cereal? And from a microbiology standpoint, it's not anything new. Um, dry, low moisture foods, dry foods, especially uh, when it comes to salmonella, are, are really quite common. Um, going back um, a, a decade or so, we, we saw, I guess, our first major outbreak in low moisture foods, well, even longer, um, 2000, 2001, linked to almonds. And since then, I, it's, I mean, there's, I, I would estimate 60, 70 outbreaks linked to low moisture foods and, and salmonella. Um, and so this, the, the initial stuff, and I guess where, where I like to start talking about it is, um, the initial thing is, well, how did this happen? And there's lots of different routes, but the more important questions that keep coming up are, well, why salmonella and low moisture foods? What is it about the pathogen? And what can a consumer do about it? And ultimately, in this case, not much. I mean, heat up your cereal with milk because it needs to be heated with dry like it and that's like pretty gross um but that's i mean that's really kind of the the same kind of stuff keeps uh keeps coming up on, on outbreaks like this and see this is why we do a podcast because the most interesting question to me was not can salmonella cause outbreaks um with dry cereal because we know about uh, a previous outbreak with salmonella agona uh, and malto meal and, and about that particular outbreak, two outbreaks that are fascinating is we had outbreaks occurring from the same plant 10 years apart with the same strain that somehow went into the deep recesses of that plant. But the, the immediate question that occurred to me when I heard about this outbreak is what's Mbandaka? Um, and so uh, we're now going to continue the proud tradition of how you do a podcast, which is you have two white guys reading from Wikipedia um, uh, to each other. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and for those of you who, who laugh, either you get the joke or you listen to podcasts or, uh, or you, you will be a future podcast listener. So, um, so th this is fascinating to me. So obviously when Salmonella strains occur, they often get named for uh, the person who discovered them or the place where they were discovered. And it uh, turns out, according to Wikipedia, which, which is never wrong, Mendaka uh, is a, a town, um, uh, is a city on the Congo River in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and it used to have a, a different name, uh, which uh, is uh, Coquille Hatville, um, which also sounds uh, really, really interesting. So, so obviously, uh, that's where this strain was first isolated. Perhaps it caused an outbreak or was, was discovered in that, in that but uh, as Ben said, with this particular outbreak, there's not really a lot that consumers can do. There's not a mitigation measure that they can practice um, other than to pay attention to the news media and then um, basically don't consume the cereal. If you have purchased the cereal, to take it back um, uh, to the store and, and, and to pay it back. 
So, so that's that's my kind of my initial take. Yeah, it's it's one as well that I think we will just continue to see outbreaks linked to low moisture foods. And um, one of the ones that, that Don and I talked about uh, a couple of years ago extensively was um, a, a few outbreaks of shigatoxin-producing E. coli linked to flour and similar type of issue where you have this low moisture food and consumption of it, you know, who eats raw flour? I mean, again, audience participation um, here, how many of you consume raw flour regularly? Not not many. Let the, let the record show no Zero. one raised their hands. How many of you sample when you're making cookies or cake or brownies, you lick the batter? Okay, so, so you eat a lot of raw flour when you do that. <laughs> let the record show many more hands went up. Um, and, and in fact, in, in that outbreak, many of the ill were linked to that, um, that practice, but not all of them. And uh, in the area that I work in, in, in retail, restaurant food safety, there was this really interesting slice of the epidemiology that showed people, mainly kids, that were at two uh, types of restaurants, um, uh, restaurants that make pizza or Mexican restaurants that traditionally make their own tortilla, they were a new sort of trend. It was, and I guess still is, to pluck, plank, plump down a big ball of dough while kids were waiting for their meal and to play with that dough, like Play-Doh. And, and then not wash hands before handling that dough and then consuming the, you know, the pizza or whatever it is, the tacos. And that practice was linked to over 15 of the, of 15 of the cases, which is a really interesting one. So. This is thinking about like um, global food law policy and linking this in. A lot of what we're talking about, especially with low moisture foods, we weren't seeing outbreaks like this really 15 years ago. And the movement of whole genome sequencing for pathogens in epidemiology, so not just looking for the specific type of bacteria, the specific strain, but really getting into exactly um, the, the genome has, has opened up a whole bunch of different outbreaks that we've never identified uh, in the past. And many of them uh, absolutely are, are low moisture foods with these long timelines. And the other one that the other types that we've seen quite a bit of are listeria outbreaks, um, where you have uh, really low numbers in the outbreaks, but a high mortality rate, uh, probably most famously an outbreak that happened in 2000. And 11, I think it was, uh, linked to Bluebell ice cream. Um, and it took until 2012 and 13 to identify uh, this outbreak. But it was a small outbreak. I mean, 10 people, 10 illnesses spread over almost a two-year period with three deaths. And the, the economic impact of that outbreak, um, which, which came, the listeria came from, from, um, from Bluebell. I think that we've got a pretty good line on that. It was probably made worse. The outbreak was made worse by um, cleaning and sanitation practices in the cafeteria food service at a hospital in Kansas. And it's nothing against Kansas. I lived there for four years uh, or four months. I mean, um, not it's felt it like years. four years. Yeah, four years. <laughs> uh, but um, those the, the, that kind of outbreak led to shutting three plants closing market share loss, some retailers never stocking that product again based on how the outbreak was handled. Um, now, four or five years later, 
after the everything was sort of solved, I, every week or so, I see an, uh, an announcement of Bluebell is coming back to Indiana, it's coming back to Ohio, and just the like the real, real economic impact of an outbreak like that, uh, uh, and literally ten illnesses. It's it doesn't really matter the size or scope. It, it's kind of what the product is and when it when it happens. And, and you know, I want to I want to sort of pick up and take it briefly back to to the low moisture foods. And, and I think one of the things that'll be very interesting as we continue to learn more about this outbreak, um, one of the, the the risk factors. And again, as Ben said, you know, I we look at these food safety events from different perspectives, and, and I, I look at it from the perspective of a guy who who develops models for bacterial behavior in foods. Um, one thing I think that would be a really interesting question about this particular outbreak is what do we know about this batch of cereal? Because what what I, and I've talked with uh, food companies, flour uh, flour and milling companies about about this issue. And at least some of the uh, flower outbreaks in the past, obviously there was there's something there's something that, that that caused those outbreaks. There had to be some initial level of contamination. But another risk factor that seems to be really important, and I, I learned about this um, from work that I did with uh, my colleague uh, Linda Harris and Michelle Danila, who's now uh, Linda's at UC Davis, Michelle's at University of Florida. Um, now, uh, but we did a, a, re a risk assessment for almonds, salmonella and almonds. And one of the, the things that you can do to mitigate risk is simply hold almonds at room temperature. And the same thing applies to E. coli or salmonella in flour. And so uh, one question I have um, regarding this particular outbreak is how fresh was this particular batch of cereal? Because what would happen over time, what I would predict as a risk modeling guy, what I would predict would happen over time um, is that if you held that cereal, um, eventually the levels would uh, would decline or the, the levels would immediately start declining, but at a very at a very, very low uh, level. And I also, for those of you who aren't here in the room, I want you to know um, that people obviously are, are staying for now, but I keep, I keep hearing uh, their phones light up uh, announcing uh, that they're, that they're going to be leaving. So I think everybody's looking to make a pretty, pretty fast exit. So, so we, we hope, uh, we hope, we hope, we hope, that, we hope that we'll keep, we'll keep everybody in the room until we end. Um, and the other point that I want to make about why we do the podcast is sometimes we get great feedback. And so let me give you an example of how research that's going on in my lab that's relevant to this particular situation, or at least generally, had its genesis in, in the podcast. So uh, back a number of episodes ago, uh, in episode 150, uh, which is entitled uh, Rambuctious, Rambuctious Ramble in the Jungle, um, uh, we, yeah, I know. Thanks. Um, we, 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 worked, we worked very, we worked very hard uh, to come up with good title names. Usually, it's something that somebody uh, said on the show. Um, and uh, we, 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 we had been over time had been talking about um, uh, these kind of outbreaks. And at some point, it might have been that episode. It might have been one before. Somebody shared with us a YouTube video on how to make safe flour in your home oven. And it was a completely unvalidated, non-scientific study, which basically said, hey, if you heat your oven up to 350, I think, and you put the oven, you put the flour in there for five minutes or 15 minutes or something, um, it will make it free of E. coli or free of salmonella or risk-free. And I said, you know, that doesn't really make sense to me. We talked about it on the podcast, and then Caitlin, uh, who you all met earlier, um, she actually is an, an actual engineer, not just somebody who pretends to be an engineer like me. And she uh, she actually did some calculations, some math, some actual real uh, math, 
And uh, she said, you know, I, I, I estimate that it's going to be like uh, tens of thousands of uh, log reduction or something like that. And I said, you know, that doesn't seem right, but I, I trust your I trust your math skills. Um, and I said, well, guess what? I've actually got a, a, a graduate student um, who's going to be doing a postdoc in my laboratory. That sounds like a great project for her to get started with. And so now I've got uh, a, a former graduate student, a postdoc now, who's basically taken uh, a crappy little toaster oven that we used to use for heating our bagels and we delegated it to be only used for food safety research. It will never be used for bagels again. Um, and it was okay because the, the, the stupid uh, uh, university safety people came through a number of uh, years ago and said, you know, you can't really have that because uh, it might, it's not safe. It's not an industrially related, uh, rated toaster oven. You might uh, burn down this cinder block building that you're in. Um, so anyway, don't get me started. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that the, this podcast is great because it allows us to interact with real people with real questions. And sometimes that actually results in research that takes us back to the laboratory. Um, so, so that's a long rambling way of saying that this podcast and this kind of interaction is an integral part to, to what uh, Ben and I do um, as, uh, as part of our jobs engaging with uh, the public. So I think that's uh, the end of my uh, rant on, on flower. Um, one, one more, I guess, topic that, that we had identified before we start um, sort of opening things up to for questions is something locally uh, here has, has become an issue as, as far as I can see, watch it from the outside, and it's um, hepatitis A in food service employees. Um, and there's a, for, for those who are not familiar, I'll give you a little bit of background on this. Hepatitis A um, something that Don and I have followed quite a bit and talked about a lot over the last few years. And the number of cases of hepatitis A that we have in the U.S. has drastically gone down. Um, really uh, over a 10,000-fold increase if we look at when vaccinations for, for kids became uh, available and encouraged and in some states required. Um, we, we see this really interesting situation where um, if you're under 30, you're unlikely to get hepatitis A. If you're in between 30 and 55, which I am, you're a little more likely to get hepatitis A. And if you're older than 55, you're unlikely to get hepatitis A. How, how does something like that happen? Well, in the, the interim, that spot where we stop, started uh, vaccinating uh, people for hepatitis A, we knocked down this natural hepatitis A um, sharing that was happening. Uh, really, in fact, there are major outbreaks um, in the Northeast and the Southwest in the 1960s, early 70s, which really spurred us to do this vaccination. And folks that were exposed to hepatitis A as kids have antibodies from it, like this natural situation. Then we sort of removed it very effectively um, from from society in the U.S. and and then, but we have this world of people like me who are um, who are more susceptible because we haven't had either the natural exposure or the vaccinated exposure. And why is that important? Well, um, over the last two years, uh, we have a, a really a massive outbreak, the largest outbreak that we've recorded in sort of modern uh, epidemiology in the U.S. All over 2,500 cases as of June 11th um, nationally. Um, 1,900 of those where risk factors are known and there are some interesting risk factors. The two big risk factors are being homeless and um, 
and having men having sex with men. And one of the things that's been really interesting in this outbreak, and you've seen it if you live around here at all, is every couple of weeks there's a food service employee that has hepatitis A that shows up to work, and now we've got a big spread of um, risk to folks in my, my demographic. And it's this really kind of interesting policy situation because as Don and I talked on previous podcasts about this, there's there are some solutions. There are things that you can do. If you're a food service operator, um, you can require all your employees to get a hepatitis A vaccine regardless of what their age are, but that's expensive. The other thing with the hepatitis A vaccine is it takes two shots, it's not one. And so with the turnover in the food service world, it becomes problematic because every, um, depending on the type of food service, uh, you're looking at maybe a 30% turnover annually. And so you've invested in one shot, but you're constantly trying to stay ahead of that, um, ahead of that wall. Um, and I, I was at, a, I was at a, a meeting last week in Los Angeles where also Michigan's actually the number one state. Uh, the, uh, there are over 870 cases uh, of those 2,500 here. And Los Angeles is the number two state, uh, or not Los, California is the number two state uh, linked to this, this outbreak. And um, public health folks are, are now looking at what other policies can be put in place. So in San Diego, there are um, uh, street, uh, street sanitizing that's happening, providing hand washing stations for the homeless population, uh, porta potties. I mean, just a lot of public health resources going into control because that's where the, the pathogen moves. Um, and I have, I, I do some work for uh, national and multinational um, food service companies. And one of that, one of the people that I know um, asked me a question about whether they should have vaccinate, what has CDC sort of changed their stance on vaccinating um, food service employees? And, and they haven't, um, for all the reasons that, that I talked about, it's expensive and, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really do um, uh, what it's supposed to. But in certain counties, we are seeing the push to vaccinate food service employees. And Los Angeles County um, has, has made a recommendation and again, again, from a policy standpoint, I find this kind of interesting. Well, maybe I'm not close enough. Oh, oh sorry. Um, and um, they are requiring or asking people to. Maybe I'll just go back to this. Um, they they're recommending anybody who is in close contact with the homeless population to have a vaccination if they're food service. And it, I find that kind of an interesting policy because it's really hard to enforce. It's really kind of impractical. And from a food service operator, when this started, uh, this conversation came up, um, my, my friend was like, what do we do? How, how do we even approach our, our employees to say, are you in the homeless population? Are you serving the homeless population? Do you live close to it? And if so, we think you should get a vaccine. And it's a really like, for me, there's this like interesting policy problem and practical problem um, with it. But I mean, ultimately, hepatitis A is, is on the increase and we're seeing it spread through through food service. Yeah, and, and so, you know, th this, I've had an interest in this topic for, for some time and we'll link 
So one of the things that we we do, um, which you, you get to actually see how the sausage is made here, as we talk, um, we are texting each other, we're, we're looking up stuff on the internet, uh, basically collecting a list of web pages that we will link to when we publish this episode. And so as Ben said, this episode will be published, we'll link to a bunch of stuff in our show notes. But one of the things that, that, that this topic first came to my mind when uh, I read an article that appeared in the Journal of Food Protection in the year 2000, and the title of that article was Cost Effectiveness of Vaccinating Food Service Workers Against Hepatitis A Infection. And basically, um, I won't I won't read to you from the article, which is something that we sometimes do on the podcast. It doesn't make for very good. It doesn't make for very good radio. But basically, it, it reiterates the point that Ben made is that this particular situation it may not be cost effective. So, but what you have to ask yourself when you come to make these policy decisions is, do you make it like? And and one of the conclusions that was very clear from from the the results of this research uh, that that I remember even to this day from, from reading it so many years ago, is that if you, if you want to keep people who eat at your restaurant from getting sick with hepatitis A, it's not very cost effective to vaccinate your workers. That's not a, it, you don't get much return on investment. However, from a policy point of view, it's the right thing to do for your workers, right? And so uh, ultimately a system that uh, that solves the problem. Um, it looks like, and it looks like we may be solving the problem anyway because of childhood vaccinations for hepatitis A. And so, as Ben pointed out before, we kind of have this weird uh, U-shaped risk curve where the really old people are immune because they were exposed when they were young, and really young people are immune because they were vaccinated. And it's this this group in the middle now, um, which also uh, is strongly represented in the homeless population that's responsible outbreaks. And so um, one of the, the really interesting things that, that, you know, part of the reason why we do the podcast is to be able to have these discussions about policy. And, you know, one of the one of the running jokes on the podcast in response to every question is, well, it depends and it's complicated. Um, and that's true with a lot of these policy discussions. But I, I, I feel nonetheless that just by having these discussions and by, ha by having these discussions on a regular basis with Ben and through inviting folks to listen in, we can maybe move forward. So um, like I said, the good news is that this hepatitis A problem may be being solved anyway. It will eventually be solved by uh, uh, comprehensive vaccination uh, for kids. But in the meantime, we have to figure out what to do. And, and um, it was really interesting to read about uh, the stuff that they're doing in, in LA County and elsewhere to try to, to manage this problem because it, it's a it's a it's a significant problem and it does constitute a, a, a relatively major public health risk. Before we move off this and, and open things up to, to questions, um, there was on the cost side of things. Look at what the cost is to vaccinate. There was a paper that was published in 2017 that looked at what are the public health costs for an incident, managing an incident. And um, there's a, a paper uh, published in Public Health Reports and uh, uh, titled Financial Burden of Public Health Responses to Hepatitis A Cases Among Food Handlers, 2012 to 2014. And I thought really, you know, here, a, a lot of what we do in food safety is trade-offs, right? It's what is the cost? Because we can manage risk well, not, never to zero, but way better than we do now by, but it costs a lot. Like it, it costs a lot of money to, to keep continuously reduce that risk. And so we have to make, we have to prioritize and we have to make uh, decisions on what we do. And, and this was looking at um, over 25 outbreaks. Um, well, sorry, 37 outbreaks over that, um, 
or incidents uh, over that time where we looked at uh, on average each, each incident cost the public health department $41,000 to manage that, that incident and cost of public vaccination and personnel time. And so that's the, that's the trade-off, right? It's can we, can we, can, how do we reduce that risk or that financial burden? Um, or do we just say, well, that's how much it's going to cost every time we have these. And we know that it's going to go up for a short amount of time. And as Don said, and then at some point as that population ages out, we'll go down. Um, and these are, I mean, like, like Don said, a lot of the fun kind of discussions that, that we like to have that you can't get across in a blog post or in a news story or in a, in a radio interview in, in five or six um, uh, sound bites. Yeah, it reminds me of that, that uh, famous quote from somebody whose name I don't remember, which is, how will I know what I think until I see what I say, right? And so a lot of times, and, and the, I see this on other podcasts as well, but it's certainly true of ours, is having the discussions with Ben, with ben actually let me work out what my thoughts are. Because until it's a lot of work to sit down and actually start typing something on the computer and, and to write something. And I, you know, I do that. I mean, that's, that's part of what, what uh, I get paid to do. But it's, it's also a lot of fun to kind of think things through with Ben first and, and work out what my thoughts are before I go and write a grant or before I go and write a paper or before I do uh, an interview uh, in the media where I have to come up with sound bites if I know if my, if my quotes uh, want to be, if I want my quotes to be used. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a really helpful exercise to, to kind of work things out. But, but I, I think we've had enough of the fun of just us talking now. So let's, let's open it up uh, to folks in the audience. I don't know exactly how this is going to work. Are there, are there uh, questions uh, that people have written down if you don't want to be recorded or are there people that want to speak up and ask questions? I see some, some hands going up in the audience. So, Hopefully, uh, Caitlin will be our, our runner and get the uh, get the microphone down to people. So, and we're we're happy to stay here. I know that we're scheduled to end at one. Uh, we'll stay until all of your questions are answered. Uh, and maybe maybe we'll 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 uh, end the recording of the podcast. But uh, but again, we're happy to stay. And uh, and again, uh, if you want a sticker and you didn't get one, by all means, come and, and get a sticker. But uh, okay, let's take the first question. So hepatitis A is um, a real issue right now. And as I listen to you talk about it today, I think um, there's a reason why perhaps it has not been addressed more strongly within the service industry. And it's, it's the tie to where it originates from. Um, I will tell you, I've recently been involved in an issue that cost our company $70,000. We could have paid for a lot of applications, $70,000. The other thing is, it's not just um, illness. There are a lot of steps tied to hepatitis A. And I don't think there has been enough action from industry and or the CDC on this issue. It's, it's for me very disappointing because people are dying. And I don't think it matters what part of the population they may be from. Yeah, and just... I just have to be louder. Maybe it's this. There you go. Um, yeah, on that, it'll, I'll just speak to the, the numbers to, to add to that because I happen to have them in front of me because I Googled them. Um, in Michigan, 843 cases um, as of June 13th with 679 hospitalizations and 27 deaths. And so this is the type of pathogen where we have quite a bit of, um, there, there's a lot of public health expense. Not, not from, a, I don't mean that from a, 
from a cost, but that I mean the number of hospitalizations, in, especially in that um, in that sector, is is quite quite staggering that we that we don't see absolutely. Um, and yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and again, these these sick people um, keep shedding the virus, often at very high levels, and so it's uh, yeah, it's 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 really uh, it's really unfortunate, and it's good. It's I mean, it's sad that it has to come to this kind of situation for it to get attention, but I'm, I'm glad that it's getting attention. Other questions? Just raise raise your hand, and Caitlin will come around with the microphone. This is awkward. Oh, here we go. I mean, we can we can just talk. We'll talk. Yeah. We're, we're we're professors. Yeah, we'll we'll just keep talking. Um, uh, so we've had a lot of discussion uh, or a couple you know sessions during this uh, this conference where the, the issues of um, addressing intentional contamination uh, of, of either fraud or food defense uh, as as concepts and, and things that. Uh, global food safety initiative programs who require businesses to address. Um, and, you know, you, Don, you talked about the safety guys coming around your office and saying you can't use this toaster because <laughs> there's this infinitesimal risk that somebody's going to burn the place down with it. Um, for a small business, the, the likelihood of somebody intentionally contaminating food uh, certainly, from a food defense standpoint, is is a black swan. It's it's you know a huge amount of uh, it's a very very unlikely event for a small business because what's the point for the contaminator? Who's going if, if you're if you have an interest in harming a bunch of people, you're not going to go after somebody who only makes a thousand you know jars of jam every day, so, or or every month or whatever. Um, so um, it's it's that seems like you know, particularly for small businesses, an, an undue burden to impose that requirement through the supply chain. Uh, that that uh, and and you know, I guess I um, would welcome your your thoughts or comment about uh, you know because because it does take time. It does take that small business time to do that analysis and do a separate vulnerability analysis and a separate threat analysis. And it, it, you know, it could all be one piece of paper that says we're too small. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and this is one of those ones where you know it, we we like to resort to that 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 phrase. It depends, and it's complicated, right? And it's good that you guys have been talking about this. Um, certainly, uh, I don't think uh, neither Ben nor I are are experts on uh, food fraud or food adulteration. I know you guys did have uh, John Spink uh, speak at the conference, and is is he in the room? Um, yeah, so he, you know, he's sort of my go-to source for, for information about this particular topic. But, but I, I get what you're saying, right? And this is one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in risk assessment and risk modeling is that it lets us begin to prioritize and say, look, we can't do everything, but let's do something. And so I guess maybe uh, this is part of this is part of why it's so great to have get questions that you don't know the answer to and you start talking and then you figure maybe you have you have a solution. So I guess what I would say is, well, yeah, certainly maybe that small operator doesn't need a full-blown plan, but what are the low-hanging fruit? And this is something that we've been working with. I've been working with some colleagues to try to get some funding um, for an analogous situation, which is to help small produce growers comply with the produce safety rule, which is part of BISMA, right? We know these small growers cannot do everything. Right, and, and FDA is not expecting them to do everything, at least not right away. And so the question is, 
what are the easy things to do? What are the, the giant barn doors that we can lock, right? What are the, the low-hanging fruit that will give that even that small operator a tiny bit of, of greater control, right? And then let's let's do those things first, because not everything is going to be equal, right? Let's take care of the really egregious problems that are easy to solve. Let's solve those problems first, and then we'll work on the more complicated, more expensive ones later. So that would be my my initial reaction as somebody who's maybe not an expert. But but you know, again, and this is the kind of thing where even a little bit of risk-based decision making, even a little bit of math applied, um, risk-based thinking and math applied can, can start you down what might be a valuable path and certainly worth uh, spending a little bit of time. Yeah, and I guess the, the thing that, that I'd add to that is I don't, the, one of the things that I've learned doing this podcast over the last six or so years with Don is to look at, um, at that issue that, that you bring up, Roland, from, from a risk standpoint. And, and one of the things that you said is it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very unlikely to have happened. And what I'm, from an academic standpoint, that helps with this conversation that I don't know is how much less unlikely is it that that happens compared to a non-intentional contamination event. And that is the, it depends on complicated side of things. And I think the business type matters for that because that's ultimately what we're trying to figure out is if we're looking at prioritizing this, we have to look at what types, you can't look at all businesses the same, you can't look at all food products the same. There are certain types of foods that lend themselves more to that risk. Um, and I think from my personal experience working in, in food service where you may have a situation of cross-docking um, or um, a, a, a very, very common thing that, that I see um, often is food deliveries that happen, actually I was walk, walking around uh, downtown DC last week at 11 o'clock at night and there was a bunch of food that was being delivered that was sitting until they opened. Like the food's there and there's a theft issue, but also like there's a, that, that's a different type of risk. That's a small, you know, small independent retail business. Um, but you have to look at all of those things together to really um, start to see where do you have to prioritize. And that's the part that I don't, think we have a good answer is what's more or less likely to what we're trying to do like with the idea of we want to have less the least amount of risk possible but but not all not all foods are, are lend themselves to, to intentional contamination equally and and so so two points number one um often we will spend uh, the first part of the podcast which we are sparing you folks today talking about what we're watching on TV or what we're listening to or what our kids or our dogs are doing or what beverages we're drinking. And, and a number of, uh, this is true. This is what we actually, also complaining about Skype. Where's, where's my bell? Um, Uh, yeah, so, um, but uh, a couple of episodes ago, Ben, I don't know if you remember this, I was telling you about the free bottle of water that I got, mm-hmm. and uh, my immediate thought was, I wonder if somebody put a, uh, a spiked bottle of water in the soda machine um, uh, so that I would uh, I would consume it and get sick, and, and Ben said something to the effect of, do you really think that that's cost-effective for the, the terrorists to do that? And, and then, you know, he made, me, he made me realize that it probably wasn't, but... Um, so, and, and then apropos uh, deliberate product tampering, which, which is what we're talking about, um, I want to take a little bit of time and plug another podcast, um, which is um, on the How Stuff Works Network, and it's a podcast called Omnibus, and it features uh, John Roderick, who is uh, 
uh, podcaster slash musician from Seattle. Uh, and he does this podcast together with a guy named uh, Ken Jennings, another great podcast from the tradition of two white guys talking to each other and reading from Wikipedia. Uh, Ken, you may remember, was, until they changed the rules, the longest running uh, champion of Jeopardy. And, but they have uh, a particular episode of their podcast uh, about the Tylenol murders, which happened oh so many years ago, but which dramatically changed uh, uh, how uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, package things. So um, I guess what's my point in all this? Well, number one, um, to tell you that I think about weird stuff when I find three um, bottles of water in the soda machine to plug the Omnibus podcast, but also to say um, we, we get to solutions to these problems by thinking about them and, and talking about them. And uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate the question, even though uh, we don't necessarily have any answers. I haven't heard anybody's phone fire off recently uh, with uh, how you're going to get have directions to get home. Well, we got another question. And then we have one in front. Perfect. Oh, microphone. She has the microphone. Yeah. So with the advent of social media over the past uh, five to ten years, we talked about earlier this morning about the need for when outbreakers to tell the truth and tell the facts. What would you guys? recommend or what would you like to see companies doing uh, when they find out that they have an outbreak of associated with them? So, so let me answer first. Yeah. So, so tell the truth and tell it fast. But the other thing that I will absolutely say is it, it's okay to say you don't know, right? It's okay to say we don't know the answer to this question, but we're working on finding out the answer. And I wish I wish more companies would do that. Um, now, I know that this is uh, nominally a, uh, a course that's uh, sponsored uh, through the law school, and there probably are some lawyers in the room. But often, and I'm not, not a lawyer, although you know we did have uh, Bill Marler, uh, who spoke earlier uh, as a guest on an early, uh, not early, but, but an, another episode of this podcast, and Bill's a great guy, and I've got a lot of lawyers who are who are friends and trusted colleagues. I think a lot of times um, lawyers get in the way of companies telling the truth uh, or not telling the truth, uh, get in the way of companies telling uh, exactly what they know. Right. And that's, I understand that like, that's their job to do that. But I, I would just, again, my, my, my key point is it's okay to admit that you don't know something and admit that you're working on trying to find out the answer. And this is something that we, we talk about all the time on the podcast about like, well, there are key questions in these outbreaks that we don't know the answers to yet, but, but tell us you're working on it or, or tell us that you don't know or give us a range of possible answers um, uh, that, that, you, that you think might represent the current possibility. So thanks for letting me go first. Yeah, and I absolutely um, agree with, with Don's comment. I think the other, the other piece um, that builds on just admitting a level of uncertainty is to tell people what they're doing to find out about that uncertainty and that, that often is, is missed. And social media allows us to do this in a way that we've never been able to do it before because the older cycle was put out a press release and just let that, you, you only have you know, 400, 500 words after you take out of your boilerplate information. But really getting into, um, here are the people that are investigating this outbreak, this incident in our company and this is what we're doing to try and figure it out. Um, from a risk mitigation standpoint, it makes all the difference. The other thing that I would that I would lean on, um, especially in the processing world, outbreak after outbreak leads to recalls, and ultimately, 
those recalls creep. They're, they're, it's in uh, Kellogg's is a good example. The initial report was here are the lots that you have to look for in your in your honey smacks, and that was done internally, right? Like here's what we've defined as a lot, and then when investigators come in, they say, "How did you define the lots?" And they say, "Well, it was a day. You know, everything we produced on that day. Well, what did you do in between those days that would establish some sort of a clean break between the production?" Well. We, you know, did our, you know, whatever sanitation was that, do you have any data? Do you have any validation that that is a, a different plot? And almost every uh, recall that, that I can think of in the last three or four years starts with a small amount and then grows. And that growing leads to credibility issues within the, the how that company's viewed. Because it was, you said you knew what you were doing and now you it looks like you didn't because as soon as the regulators came in, everything got, got got bigger. And so I think that having that conversation earlier and, and really taking that uncertainty on, on and saying, we, you know, having a sense of that, what epidemiology does too, that if it's in the product, in someone's home, and it's in the bag, that it, you can't say in a press release or in your social media, it's not been confirmed that it's come from us. Because I don't know what that means. Other than, yeah, they found it in the product in your bag. It's pretty much, you know, you don't have a letter from the government that says it's confirmed, but have a sense of how these things work um, is, is, I think, part of, uh, part of that uh, moving forward. And, and we've talked about uh, in past episodes the, the absolutely abysmal messaging that the Chipotle restaurants did, um, where the, the CFO is basically showing he's completely ignorant about how CDC works and complaining that the CDC is picking on the company because they're prolonging it. And it's like, well, obviously you've never ever read a CDC uh, outbreak history report to know the way this things work because it works textbook like every other time the CDC has done this. And it just doesn't, doesn't give you any credibility at all, um, uh, especially uh, not, not in the eyes of anybody that knows anything about food safety. We had another question up here. And just wait for the microphone because we're recording it. Makes it easier. Uh, quick question. The, in your materials, in the description of your podcast, in there is where you find it. I, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, called, it's called Food Safety Talk. Give that man a sticker. Yeah. Um, it's called Food Safety Talk. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you don't know uh, how to download a, part, a podcast on your smartphone, um, if you have an iPhone, I can help you. If you have an Android phone, you can find somebody else to help you. That's not me. Um, uh, but maybe find uh, like a 13-year-old. That's probably 13-year-old is probably too young. I think they only watch uh, YouTube. But uh, find somebody who's maybe like a millennium, uh, a 20-something. Uh, they can probably help you. You're welcome. You know, anytime someone says quick question, I, my immediate thought is it's not a quick question, but, but his actual question was actually a quick question. So thank you for that. And in the, I mean, in the, we know that we've gone a, a couple minutes over here and I know that there are sessions um, that are starting. So if you have to go to those sessions, don't, we're not going to feel bad um, at all. So just, just go. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, when we do this podcast, usually it's just the two yeah. of us talking to each other. So uh, and like someone's cutting the lawn somewhere, and dogs are barking. So we're totally used to just people walking out. Um, uh, but if there are any other questions, we're we're happy to stick around. If not, that's probably the end of our session. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And again, look for this to be posted uh, on the internet. Uh, hopefully, if the audio recording works, uh, hopefully, uh, posted in a future session.